Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Great to see you, uh, especially if you're here, but if you're online, we're glad to have you here as well. Uh, conclude a series today called Ancient Paths where we're looking for some guidance for living in any day and in any culture, but this seems so necessary right now. So we're looking at wisdom literature in the scriptures, and it has been challenging us to think hard and humbly about life. Life is broken. There aren't rules for everything. Life is messy. There's lots of mysteries and miseries. But what we have been learning is that God rules over order and disorder. So we looked at Proverbs, which sort of explains the order of reality, the rationality that we're all used to. If you do this, you get this. But Proverbs sort of uh, cracks the door on disorder just a little bit because not everything works out like you think it's going to. But then Job comes along and kicks the, the door in on order completely and, and rationality. And, it, in, and it, it brings mystery into the picture. And we have to think about how to deal with that and we realize that there is a limit to our reason, our ability to be able to think everything and know everything and that's scary when we don't know something especially in this arena and so now uh, of course this idea that you can't reason your way to all knowledge is it flies in the face of centuries of beliefs that reason that man can reason his way to and through anything And so uh, that's especially true in our culture, where if we can't come up with a reason for it, and it's not important or it doesn't exist, or, I mean, we're the end-all thinkers. And so we sort of worship reason. If we can't figure God out, we just assume he isn't there. Or that if he is there, he's good for nothing. That's sort of how the thinking goes. But there's irony in that. We think of our thinking. We think that our thinking is everything. We think too high of our thinking. And then at the end of the day, I think, without God, there's no basis for any rationality. It just gets more convoluted. And that's what Os Guinness has in mind at the end of his book, uh, God in the Dark when he talks about this topic of rationalism, rationality, uh, reason. And he writes uh, about reason. You have to keep reason in its place. If you give it too much value, uh, if you give it unlimited value, it actually limits it. It actually turns it into something like 
approaching irrationality. Now, I'm going to show you what I mean. Don't, don't get lost on that. Uh, so he says the Christ, Christian faith is rational, but it's not rationalistic. Uh, rationalism, he, is said, he says, leads to ration, irrationality. So if you worship reason, there will come a point at which you will have to assess a whole block of life that doesn't surrender itself to reason. And you will come up with a lot of weird ideas because you put so much emphasis on reason. It becomes irrational. You forget its limit. So rationality eventually hits mystery and it can't figure that out. And so you can say, well, because I can't reason with mystery, I'm just going to live with absurdity. I'll just live with some irrationality because my reason is so important that I'll let myself become irrational. That's what he writes about. Um, so he says, the Christian's, Christian faith's contention with rationalism is not that it's too much reason in it. You ought to reason everything you can reason. But it just has nothing else. And it has a limit. There's nothing else to offer you. So when Christian believers come to faith, their understanding and their trust go hand in hand, but as they continue in their faith, sometimes their trust is called upon to go by itself without understanding. That's what Job taught us. I don't understand, but I trust. There's a limit to rationality. And if you don't see that, You'll become irrational. And that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Ecclesiastes says, let me show you what I mean by that. And so Job will say, uh, let me show you how you can live with mystery. And what you can't live with, Ecclesiastes says, I'll tell you what you can't live with is absurdity. And that's what brings us to the book of Ecclesiastes because if, if Job sticks the knife in Ecclesiastes twists it. Job's view of mystery is very narrow. It's, it's, it's from a singular point of view. If I just took your life and your pain and tried to interpret reality through it. Ecclesiastes broadens that to all kinds of pain and suffering. All kinds of problems the human being has to encounter. And it broadens it. And you start to see the problems of mystery everywhere. And if you, if you only trust your reason to deal with it, you'll eventually become irrational. And that's what Ecclesiastes tries to do. You end up with more problems. You end up conflicted, frustrated, confused. You, 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 philosophically, you come to absurdism. That's what it's called where you will ask all these questions about meaning like Job does and the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon does. Human beings do. But you won't have any answers. That's what philosophically absurdism is. You will ask, is there any meaning to human life, to my life? But you cannot get an answer. If you exclude God, there's no answer to be found. Uh, and that's... That's what Camus is suggesting in our, you know, he's the, 
He lived in the middle of the 20th century, died in 1960. He was the French philosopher, atheist. But he was one who wrestled with this. And he was trying his best to be honest. If you kick God out of reality, you reason that God isn't here. Now you've sort of put a lid on reality and everything beyond that becomes unanswerable. And you have to live with that, he says. You have to live with that. You can't steal, sneak in, and smuggle ideas from up above once you kick God out. Camus says, you got to live with that. Literally, that's what he says. And so he rejected any kind of meaning in life because he kicked God out. He said, you can't find meaning, so I reject scientific meaning, teleological, metaphysical, or human-created ends that could come up with any adequate answer. There is no answer if you kick God out, is what he said. So you must learn to bear an irresolvable emptiness. You have to learn to live with that. You can ask the question, but you cannot have an answer if you kick God out of the picture. So just embrace it. What Ecclesiastes sets out to do is he's going to say, that's not livable. You're going to find that if you kick God out, you are, <laughs> it is too hard to live that way. It's, it's, not, it's not doable. Uh, it's absurd. So Job will say, here's what it looks like to suffer with God. And by suffer, I don't just mean disaster like that came upon Job. I'm talking about the, you, 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 you suffer in tons of ways. You suffer mentally. You suffer psychologically. You suffer socially. You suffer in every way. There's pain every corner of life. There's pain. Hard questions, unanswerable uh, decisions. You, you, you hurt in lots of ways. So the suffering, if you do it with God, there's mystery. You can trust him. Ecclesiastes come along and says, let me show you what life looks like in all of those scenarios without God. And he's going to show it's impossible to try to live without him. Because you'll steal. You'll steal something to find meaning. So Oz Guinness is the one who said, you, you can suffer with God or you can suffer without him. And what Ecclesiastes comes along and says, it's not realistic to do it without him. You're not going to live life without him. Life without God is far more miserable, as we'll see. And it's just not livable. Uh, livable. Uh, so if you think hard and humbly, Ecclesiastes will say, because he's going to push you to the edges and boundaries of all that you believe. And maybe you've never pushed your mind to the boundaries of everything that you believe to ask the question, yeah, what does that get me? the end he'll he'll challenge your logical conclusions on all your positions in life and he'll lay bare the foundations of your world he'll force you to to ask is that what I believe is that realistic is that where it leads have I found the contradictions in what I believe the inconsistencies? And see, most people refuse to do it. Most people refuse to admit 
Life without God is absurd. They do their best to try to figure out a way to find meaning once they kick God out of the picture. They do their best. They just don't want to admit it uh, because it's overwhelming to do it. It takes a lot of moxie. It takes a lot of spiritual and intellectual guts to say, that doesn't work. Look what it gets me. That's empty. Most of us don't want to deal with that. You think things through to their bitter end. Very few people do that. And so Solomon says, if you do it, if you can do that, I'll tell you what you'll come up with. And he gives basically the second to last verse of the whole book. He'll tell you. I'm going to tell you I've done it is what he says. And here's what it told me. The end of the matter, the philosophical matter, all has been heard. All the reasoning has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That's where we started in Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is the fear, fear of God. And now the same writer says, no, it's the end of the matter too. It's the beginning and the end. And if you do honestly push all your beliefs to the edge, you'll realize there has to be a God. There has to be one I can relate to. That's what the fear of God means. Somebody I can connect with and relate to can guide my life. Uh, have you read... Um, when Breath Becomes Air, it's a memoir, basically, of a, of a, of a fellow who, uh, this thing won all kinds of awards. It came out in 2016. I read it in one sitting because I, I just couldn't stop. I just, for out, just kept reading, reading, because it was so good. Um, he was basically a neurosurgeon, and he was finishing tenure, very brilliant guy, uh, had... Uh, so, such a promising future. Just one of the great minds in the medical world. And he was at Stanford. Won all kind of awards this book. And he asked basically the question, what's the meaning in life? He's basically, it's, a, it's basically a book about Ecclesiastes. And so uh, he was 36 years old, ten year, almost 10 years into his training to become a neurosurgeon. And is diagnosed stage four lung cancer. This brilliant man who uh, considered himself what he called an ironclad atheist. Brilliant guy. Reading this book is a joy. Um, he says, here's my problem with Christianity. This is how he began to, to, to reason. He says, uh, Christianity fails on empirical grounds. In other words, practical, experiential grounds in his mind can't prove it kind of a thing. Reason kind of a thing. It's failure on empirical grounds, he says, because it seems to him that enlightened reason offered a more coherent cosmos. There again, reason offered a more coherent cosmos, a material conception of reality, and ultimately a scientific worldview. So what he basically did was he, he kicked God out and said, I just want to live in this little box without God. This scientific, natural, material, physical world, that's all I want to have. So he tried. But then he says, as he, as he goes along now, realizing he's going to die, 
he starts to realize, you know, when you kick God out, you kick a lot of other things out too. You need to really push that boundary to the edge. What happens when you kick God out of your life? He goes on to say, well, you got to kick out love. You got to kick out hate and you got to kick out meaning. If you're going to be honest, kick everything out with him. Don't try to hold things back and smuggle back some meaning for your little puny life inside this little physical material world. You got to kick it all out. And so he says, along the way, this brilliant mind, scientific reasoning, science and reason are inadequate because we are more than chemical responses. And those chemical and science is is not applicable to the central aspects of human life. The things that mattered to me the most, I realized there's no way science explains those. In other words, he encountered life beyond reason. And when you go beyond reason, you encounter God. And if you don't go past reason, you'll become irrational and try to live a life without God. And you can't. That's when your ration, ration, uh, rationality becomes irrational. And so he eventually, he dies before the book finishes. His wife finishes it. He dies in 2015. And he eventually says, Christianity offers the values that, I, that resonate inside of my heart. And so he eventually just... Uh, he found them so compelling that he literally leaves secularism, which is the whole idea that God doesn't exist. It's, it's a tremendous read, but it's Ecclesiastes. Um, now, so you're, you're, you're having to ask questions like, where's this going? What's the end? What happens if I choose God or choose not to have him? What's it all for, and is it worth it? Now, in order to demonstrate that the writer of Ecclesiastes, that life without God, to examine life without God, he's going to put you in the box that you just... Uh, he's going he's to show you what life looks like in the box without God. Um, without supernatural, without eternity, without hope of eternity. And you're going to find he's relentless, and he, he, and he demands honesty from you. You be honest. You really believe that? Push it to the edge. And just like at the end of the book, after he's thought it all through, he gives you a one-verse answer. At the beginning of the book, if he says, if you kick God out, let me show you what you have. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, he's going to say this. You're going to be honest. You either have God or you have nothing. Don't try to have something just like the writer of When Breath Becomes a. Don't try to, you have nothing. It's all vanity, all empty. Now, what empty, what vanity here means is, is zero. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty powerful term because he has the idea of nothing. There's nothing there. You kick God out, you have nothing left. Now, so few are willing to say this out loud, even new atheists 
who are so convinced in their new philosophical approach to, to modernism uh, and postmodern world that we live in, they have come up with so many ways to try to find meaning without God that it's almost ridiculous to listen to. It be, it's, it's, it's rationality that becomes irrational. And very few people are willing to say, life's just absurd if he doesn't exist. So to be able to come out and say that right there, very few people would say, and it's because they haven't pushed their ideas all the way to the boundaries. To say this out loud, yeah, it's God or nothing, brother. All means all. Nothing meaningful. Nothing. Oh, you say, well, I feel a little good about that. Nope. Well, what about, nope. It's all gone. Very few people are willing to do that. Now, vanity, it's such, a, it's such a desperate word in this book. It just means dark, lights out, nothing, no light, no bright spots. It's blunt and it's brutal. And the word means brief. It's like, it's like breath, sort of like the title of the book. Uh, airy, nothing. It, it's elusive. You can't, you can't grab it. Once you kick God out, there's nothing substantial to hold on to, and it's just so short, like breath. You can't grab it, and it's quick, brief. There's nothing real about it, nothing substantial. Nothing you believe, nothing you feel, nothing you experience, nothing you do, nothing you accomplish is real. Well, I'd like to consider myself somebody who has really helped others. Means nothing. Don't try to find meaning anywhere. That's his point. He's going to prove that. Life has no ultimate meaning. It has no ultimate impact. It's pointless. Now, that's overwhelming. People don't say that. Even people who, who don't believe in God, you'll find an atheist every now and then who's trying, who's trying to be honest, like Camus, wrestles with the fact that, yep, that means I can't find meaning anywhere. Uh, and, and he... The writer of Ecclesiastes uses this image, because here's verse 3, because once you say that, then your next question is obviously going to be, wait a minute, can I find any value in my life under the sun? Is there anything to be gained? Nope. That's his point. Because that's the next question. Now, he's going to use this whole idea of under the sun, because that is the small world that you live in now that you've kicked God out. It's only physical, natural, material. Past the sun, there's nothing. There's a great little image here for you. Uh, It's basically, I'm going to put a lid on anything that's mysterious. There's nothing up here to interact with. There's no mystery, there's no God, there's no divine. I live in this little bubble, and I've closed it off to everything. I have lived... I've lived my life to the limit of my reason. I can't reason anything past that, so that's as far as I'll go. Can you sustain life here like that? That's the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's asking, can you do that? This word is under the sun, used 30 times. Uh, for the secular world that has closed off God and transcendence. And then there's this little word, toil. Uh, I got to live under this sun, and it's hard work. That's the word toil. It's a multifaceted term in the book of Ecclesiastes because it, 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 it can mean 
a specific thing or a broad thing. It can mean your job, toil, you know, the work you do at work, or it can mean the work of your whole life. You know, life's work. Everybody, if you've lived long enough, you know, married, few kids, you know, life's work. Everything's hard. Eating's a crisis. Driving's a crisis. Everything's a crisis. Because it's hard. Every experience, life, all of it, it's just difficult. So it's all your activities, all your involvements, all your pursuits are a pain. They're hard work. So he says, none of those things that you're working so hard for, buzzing around the planet, doing, means anything. There's no gain. That word is only used in Ecclesiastes. Used about nine times. And the term literally means leftovers. Is there anything left after I've killed myself in this little world without God? Is there? It's a commercial term. So it ha- it's, a, it's a business term. It's a financial term. It's the bottom line. When you, when you look at uh, you say, yeah, maybe you put a business plan together. You want to start a business. And you go, yeah, I'm going to put a business plan together. Let's see, if I do this, 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 and this, what's it going to net me? What will I get at the end? If that's a big fat zero, you go, why would I do it? Why would I put in all that effort? Well, this is what he's talking about is not just a business model. This is a, biz- a, life, a business model for living. Is life worth living if I, if I do go all the way to the end and realize there's nothing there? Is that worth living? I wouldn't start the business Why would I live if at the end there's nothing to gain? That's what he's saying. And it's a fair question. Is this model for living profitable? Listen, we're teleological beings. You want to know why. For everything in life, from the time you're this big, you want to know why for everything. If I told you tomorrow, listen, at 4.30 a.m., I'd like you to show up into the parking lot right here, stand in the middle of it with your pajamas on and a fedora. Shoes are optional. And bring a hammer. Now, if you don't know me, what would you say to me? Get out of here. That's the end of the conversation. Even if you, even if you like me a lot, you're going to say what? Uh, why? We will ask why for everything except for the biggest questions in life. Because we, we got to know. But what happens is we'll ask why for our little business models, but we don't ask it for living. Why am I waking up every day? Why am I going to live 50, 60, 70, 80 years? Why? That's what he's forcing you to do. It's the business of living. What do you get at the end? And what he's going to say in chapter 1 and verse 4, let's see. He's going to show you why you get nothing. So, this is the little box you want to live in, this little earthly material world. Okay, here's what happens. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All right, this is the idea that uh, you're going to be long gone soon. Generations come and go. In other words, it's brief. It's not lasting. It's fragile. When have you ever described your life as you come and you go? It's it's so vague. There's not really a, a purposeful beginning. There's really no 
ultimate great destiny to look forward to is just come and go. You just somehow appear, nobody explains that, and then somehow you just disappear. You're gone. That's, that's about as nondescript of a human life as you can. It, it reduces human life down to as in, insignificant as you can possibly be. You come and you go. No purpose, no destiny. You become tiny and forgotten. Any mark you make on the world will be erased. Because generations and history just come and go. Eventually you'll be forgotten. Many of us couldn't even name our great-grandfathers. Who was that? I had one? Did you know you had one? You may not have known you had one. Pretty soon you'll be forgotten. No profit, no surplus. All your puny deeds will disappear. And the reason is, is because the way the world works, it doesn't churn out. The business model of the material world does not churn out naturally by itself significance and purpose. Try as you may, you can't get anything out of it. It won't give you it. Just churns us out. Generations come and go. All right, next, next, next. And you know, look at what he says as he keeps going. Now he's going to say, let me show you more about this world that you've decided to live in, because if that's the world you want to live in, I'm going to show you how you're like your world. This is the reason why the world just churns us out. And he's going to use the sun, and he's going to use wind, and then he'll use water in the next verse. So the sun... Look, it sounds just like the human life before it. Generation comes and goes. Sun rises, sun goes down, hastens to, it pl- to its place. The sun just hurries to the same place it went to yesterday. Nothing new. Nothing significant to it. Doesn't mean anything. Well, you've decided to live under the sun. Well, the sun does that. That's your life too. Generation comes and goes. Sun rises and goes back down, hastens to its place. You want, oh, Uh, Let me tell you something about the wind blowing to the south. Goes around to the north. Around and around it goes. Aimless. That's your life. Your life's going nowhere. It's aimless. Just like the wind. All streams run to the sea. Now he's going to talk about water, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Water goes into the sea. The sea doesn't rise. Water evaporates, becomes a cloud, and then it rains again, and it just keeps a cycle going. But there's nothing fulfilling about it. That's life. You'll never find the ultimate satisfaction. You'll never find ultimate purpose. You're just like water. That's an incredible description of monotony and exhaustion and repetition. And then 1.8, you wonder why he says this. All things are weariness. Well, that's miserable. That wears me out thinking about it. Not only is life wearisome, just thinking about that wears me out. A man cannot even describe a useless, purposeless, empty life like that. It can't come to his mouth. He doesn't even know how to put it in words. I guess that's why we ignore it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You know what that means? This is so incredibly profound. It basically means this. Somehow I live in this empty world going nowhere, but I see, I sense that there's something that I should, I should see more to life. I should hear. There's got to be something I could hear to bring meaning into this world. There's got to be something there to see. And there's nothing. Just a devastating thing. Beyond words to describe. Nothing left over. No satisfaction. Though my eyes want to see it, it can't. Though my ears want to hear it, they, it, they won't. Because we've closed God out. What has been is what will always be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And here's the saddest thing. And this, this is so overwhelming. Oh, you're going to get your iPhone 12. Don't panic. Yeah, right? There's a, new, there's a new phone coming. That's not what he's talking about. There's no new thing to come in to change the material, physical reality that life is useless. We'll come up with new phones, we'll come up with new technology, but nothing will change the fact that meaning cannot be found without God. There is no new thing coming that will change this for human beings. See? Oh, look, maybe this will do it, maybe that will do it. Not coming. You're just going to fall right into the other ages. You'll just come and go like everybody else. And to insignificance. That's... That's the right conclusion if you honestly assess life without God. There's an article in the New York Times some time ago. A guy was trying to find personal value and meaning, and so he wrote an article about it, basically arguing you can't find it. So another commentator for the New York Times wrote, trying to sum up what he said. When the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser head for a week. It found 30,000 galaxies, over 13 billion years old, with many trillions of stars and many, many, many more trillions of inferred planets. We keep finding planets all the time and galaxies. So, how significant are you in this little life under the sun? You're just another piece of decaying matter. You are not a unique snowflake. You're just uh, decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing who you are, nothing and what you will do in a short time that you're here will matter. Not who you are or what you do in the short time you're here will matter. Everything short of that realization, he actually uses the word from Ecclesiastes, is vanity. You just created a world without God. So the, the writer says, so go celebrate life. Have a, good, have a great day. Admire its wonder. Love without reservation. And the writer, think, listening to this guy, goes, wait a minute. You just told me my life doesn't matter. You just told me I have no meaning or purpose. I didn't come here with any purpose, and I'm not going to any ultimate destiny, but you're telling me that I should love other people? Where does that come from? How do you conclude that from a life without God? Why wouldn't I be better off living for myself? 
There's no one to judge me at the end. If nothing matters, why does anything I do matter? See, he's not being honest. He's trying to smuggle in meaning to a life that has no meaning. That's what the materialistic world tells you. You have no purpose, no soul. The good and the evil you do makes no difference. And you have to ask the question, wait a minute. Can decaying matter decide what's important? How, did I, how do I come to this? <laughs> Why do other people all of a sudden matter to me if nothing matters? I don't know if you've done this lately, but you really ought to try it. I listened to Bob Dylan's The Answer My Friend is Blowing in the Wind. It was all I had to stay alive. He lists all these questions. How many times? You know the song I'm talking about. I know you know it. Do you know how many crazy questions he asked? None of them can be answered. He says the answer is blowing in the wind. If the answers are blowing in the wind and nobody can have them, what meaning to life is there? I wouldn't listen to that song without other people around you and your hands tied. All right? It'll hurt you. So what he's trying to argue in this book, hey, you want that position? Then everything that has meant anything to you, you got to kick it out. you got to kick it out with God. Uh, and so his point is you can't maintain that honestly and experientially in your life. It's impossible. It's not livable. And I want to show you the ways that he shows you that that's true. So let me... Uh, let me show you. Remember this picture here. This is our little um, Charles Taylor, modern philosopher, has a book called The Secular Age. Anyway, his, in his thinking, it's called The Imminent Frame. So he, you live in the frame. So you still have the sun and you still have the earth. But in this frame, there are these, every once in a while, there'll be a little hole. Somebody will poke a hole in the thinking here. And a little bit of light will kind of shine through on this. And so as you live your life, you go, man. That felt way too meaningful to only live in this box. I think that was way much, far better than nothing. Well, the writer of Proverbs was going to give, or Ecclesiastes is going to give you all these little holes that are in this thinking. Let me give you them. Number one, morality. This is a simple one argued uh, a lot. But how do you decide what's right? Why should you decide what's right if there's nobody to give you, if there's, if there's no ultimate God above? Um, how do you even assess your own heart? How do you know what you believe is right is right? And how come there's so many people who don't think what you think is right is right? Who's right? Uh, do you live, do, do, do you think you know at least some differences between good and evil? How'd you come about that? Science can't answer that. Do you ever feel like you ought to do something? Where'd that come from? Do you ever feel bad because you didn't? Where did that come from? See, it's a, it's a little hole that shines through that you go, man. 
And why is it that I feel like there are times in my life when I can look at you and say, you ought to do that. Well, who do you think you are telling me I ought to do anything? It just doesn't work. But yet you feel these things, and you feel them hard. And that's why he says in Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, let's see if I can find this thing. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. How does that happen? Where's, where's that moral streak coming from if God isn't here? Why do I feel that? Right of Proverbs wants you to, or Solomon wants you to push that all the way to the edge. Yeah, how do I get that? Don't ignore that question. How about injustice? Do you hate injustice? I'll tell you right now. I can tell you. I, I don't know you very well. And I, don't, I bet I, nearly at the very top of your list, you hate injustice. You cannot stomach it. At some level, in some way in life, you hate it when it happens to you, and you, you even hate it when it happens to other people. When the bad guys win, you hate that. This is the reason why we like movies. Because we want the bad guy to get it. Your heart breaks when somebody in power uses and exploits somebody who doesn't have any leverage. You hate that. You hate the little guy getting that. Where's that come from? Where does your sense of justice come from? That strong sense of justice. For human rights, for equality and dignity, for value. Why does it mess with us so much when evil wins? And who gets to define what's evil? Uh, I saw, I looked under the sun, and I, where there should have been justice, there was wickedness. And when there should have been righteousness, there was, there was wickedness. We hate that. Where's the justice? I'll tell you another one. That's, an, that's, that's another light. Here's another light. Uh, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Why is it that my soul is not satisfied with the things that I thought would satisfy it? No matter what it is, no matter how old you are, the thing you get, you thought you had to have, eventually you realize it wasn't the thing. And you'll do that all your life until you're dead. Uh, have you, have, and they're powerful desires. Oh, I got to have it. Oh, I got to have it. What's happening in my soul? that I could find significance for being alive through that thing, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but you ought to go on YouTube and watch. I'm going to show you the beginning, you little YouTube clip of a, of a high school graduate who's a valedictorian. He's 18 years old, and he's given a speech. This is just this last graduation. Listen to, listen to what this uh, kid says. Just watch this. I stand before you tonight as the 2019 valedictorian. This time last year, I found out that I was in the running for this title. It was then that I decided I wanted it. So, I worked hard for it. I sacrificed for it. And yes, I stressed for it.
and I got it. <laughs> and at our senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It was so good for about 15 seconds. Yeah, 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won! 15 seconds of being at the top of the pile of all my accomplishments, and it felt euphoric. But there must come a 16th second. And on that 16th second, sat down in my seat, I looked at my silver stole that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it? <laughs> what just happened? Why, why am I not feeling anything else? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't even know what I was expecting. A parade of balloons to drop? Or, or maybe I was hoping that all of my problems would fade away in comparison to this amazing achievement. But none of that happened. Not even in my heart. I felt nothing. I was shocked. This was a huge problem for me. And I needed to figure out why. Very few people are willing to say, that's a problem. Why does that happen to us? See, that's the writer of Ecclesiastes. He said, yeah, push that all the way to the edge. Don't ignore it. Don't just say, move on to the next thing. Because he's going to go to college now and want to do the same thing. Maybe it's the college valedictorian that, that's, that'll, that'll satisfy my soul. No, it won't either. So push it all the way out to the edge. Some smart little kid at 18. C.S. Lewis says, the reason the things in this life won't satisfy you is your desires are too weak. You were made with something greater in mind and nothing here is great enough. And if nothing here is great enough to satisfy your desires, maybe that means you were made for another world. Brilliant. How about all the special moments in life, the ones that touch you deeply, the ones that really move you, whether you're listening to, a, to music or holding your granddaughter or uh, sitting with a friend or having a great conversation with a friend or just sitting alone with a cup of coffee having great thoughts. There's just nothing like those deep moments, special moments that signal life has to mean more. Read C.S. Lewis's essay, on living in the atomic age. I can't, I can't uh, get to it today. But what about suffering? Why do you ask why on suffering? Why don't you just suffer? Why do you need meaning? But you do. There's nothing better for a person. Uh, let's go to this one. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives a few days in his vain life? Uh... I saw from the hand of God that apart from him, who can, eat, who can enjoy anything? And then suffering. Why does it matter so much to know? And then look at the last one is death, he'll say. Push that one to the edge too. These are all things he says, push to the edge and see what you get at the end. Try death. Death usually brings people around to asking the hard questions, but very often it's too late. You've lived your whole life without purpose. And very often, you're not really convinced enough. You just start questioning even further. Kind of like Steve Jobs, the one who created that iPhone you love so much. Brilliant man, t 
toiled hard under the sun, thought he was impacting the world. No, he's just part of the come and go generation. And it wasn't until he was sitting in a garden just days before he died that it hit him. There's got to be more to life than this. Don't tell me everything I've done is gone. But he said, I'd like to think that something survives after you die. But he was too late. Julian Barnes wrote a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, where he's trying to convince, he's an atheist, trying to convince himself that death is no big deal. I can do it. I can do it. I can live without God. I can die without God. But he can't. The whole book is a struggle with it. And you know it's going to be a struggle because his very first line in the whole book is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's like, you're in trouble, big boy. You're in trouble. Oh, my goodness. So what happens is, as Derek Kidner says in his deal on Ecclesiastes, you have these obstinate facts in your head about God's not here. Obstinate facts. But then you also have these obstinate intuitions. These things that are happening to you that seem like there's more than just those facts. So he concludes the book, basically the end of Ecclesiastes, says, you know, what we said earlier. The end of the matter is just admit it. You can't do life without God. You're going to smuggle in meaning from him. You're going to use him to find meaning even though you think he doesn't exist. But then chapter 12, the whole, 12, whole chapter 12 starts with, look, creator. But if you start life with there's a creator, a beginning, Somebody made you with a purpose. And then you realize at the end of life, somebody's going to judge you. Now you have a beginning and an end. Now you have purpose and you have a destiny. And somebody made you. And this is a total reversal. If you love him and you know him and you know your creator, then you know what you're here for. And all of a sudden, look, every single thing Every deed, every secret, it all matters. It's all going to be judged one day. What I do does matter. What I feel does matter. Every one of my experiences does matter. All my activities do matter. With God in your life, all of those intuitions scream, yes, they matter. But without God, they can't. Nothing means anything. But if you have God, everything means everything. That's the path of wisdom. It has a beginning and an end. You can't live wisely if you don't have purpose from the get-go and a place to land at the end. It's impossible. It's the why. Because you have a creator, that's why you sense you ought to do things. Because you have a creator, it's why you hate injustice and you hope he comes around to judging evil one day and makes everything right that's not right. It's the reason nothing will satisfy you. It's the reason you have transcendence in those special moments. It's the reason you beg for answers when you hurt. It's the reason death does not feel final. It's because of him. 
Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he's put eternity in your hearts and you will always, always struggle to live without God because he's placed in you this longing for something beyond this life. And when you have purpose, meaning comes. Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, is the one who uses this great illustration of the watch because he says goodness and morality are not abstract things. They require purpose. So in other words, if you look at this watch I'm wearing and you say, is that a good watch? Because I've been using it as a hammer in my house and it's not really that great. You would look at me and you go, that's not what the watch is for. Unless you know the watch's purpose, you can't determine whether it's good or not, whether it's a good one. Well, what about human beings? How do you determine what's a good one? If you don't know what that human being's purpose is, you cannot determine whether it's a good one or not. You can't determine what's right and wrong. With a creator, you know. You were made and designed for him and him alone. Now, so I'll close by saying this. Which sounds more real to your experience? Life with God or life without him? And be honest. As try as you may, you cannot live life without God honestly. You just can't do it. In the closed world, chapter one says, nothing new under the sun. Nothing's gonna change that if you kick God out. There's no hope, no answers. There's no way out of that machine-like naturalistic world. No meaning to be found anywhere. But Jesus comes along and says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. Only Christ can bring the answer, the newness, literally, recreating your universe, your life, and bring meaning to every single part of it. Only he can do that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He can transform your world, literally, and you. And then you can know hope and live with hope that one day God will break into this world and restore and renew everything. Everything will be made right. Revelation 21.1. And I, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down. Renewed and restored. Everything is right. He removes evil. He heals hearts. He dries tears. He ends death. He literally becomes our son, S-U-N. I don't know about you, but that resonates with my deepest longings. That's a story that grabs a hold of me. And if it resonates with yours, then stop denying it. Stop denying it. Stop it. Be honest. Trust him. Surrender your life to him. Completely. All of it. That's the only way to start the ancient path to wise living.
Father, we just are in awe at your word and pray that you'll help us see what is so hard to see. In Jesus' name, amen.